0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackhouse. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Mary Fulbrook about her new book, Reckonings, Legacies of Nazi Persecution and the Quest for Justice. Reckonings is forthcoming and we've been fortunate enough to get our hands on an advanced copy for the interview today, but the rest of you out there will be able to pick up your copy on 11 October 2018 from Oxford University Press. Those of you who are interested in the lived experience of Nazi crimes, the abortive post-war search for justice, and most importantly, the changing self-conception of both perpetrators and victims should all take note. Fulbrook makes masterful use of diaries and memoirs to recover voices which have been silenced in the dominant post-war narratives of the Holocaust as they took shape through public discourse and private recollection. But enough from me, Mary Fulbrook has been so good as to join us today to talk about Reckonings. So without further ado, Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks. Before we begin today, Why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself? How did you become interested in the craft and become a historian?
2: I think that in my childhood, I was very puzzled. My mother was a refugee from Nazi Germany. She managed to get to Britain before the war. But after the war and after I was born, she went back many, many times with us as children on family summer holidays to meet up with her old school friends to revisit places that she loved. And for me, therefore, Germany was always a wonderful place, the place of summer holidays and family times together. And yet, at the same time, at no time in my life did I not know about the Holocaust, even before the name was used. I always knew there was something utterly evil, utterly terrible. So this kind of puzzle really formed my interests. And I was desperate both to learn German as a second language, unfortunately, because my mother didn't speak it at home, but also to explore the history and the culture and to try to put together that puzzle of how could Germany, the land of Hitler, have produced that incredible culture of Bach, of Goethe, of all the great writers and musicians and thinkers. And this really uh, pushed me into inevitably having to explore German history as a profession. At school, I wasn't actually allowed to take history for the British A-levels at the time because my school said no other child in the school wanted to do both history and German and I had to choose between them, which seems a little unfair in retrospect. So it was a bit of a roundabout way. I studied social and political sciences. I studied archaeology and anthropology, all of which I loved, which I was really, really interested in. But then as a graduate student in the States, I finally got more and more interested in comparative history and landed up doing what was really my lifelong passion, German history.
0: So you've written a number of books in this area. How has your previous research brought you to the issues that you're dealing with in Reckonings?
2: I've always been fascinated by the way people experience and live history. And I was trying to work out the issue of how people are shaped by, but also shape the environment in which they live. So one of my previous books was called Dissonant Lives. And this traced the experiences and actions of different generational cohorts throughout the 20th century, as they lived through very different kinds of dictatorship, the right-wing Nazi Third Reich and the left-wing communist German Democratic Republic in Germany. And that I found just really fascinating, that when you were born, determine the kinds of challenges you would have to face at different periods of your life. And that, in turn, helped to shape how you would rise to those challenges, how you would think about them, how you would talk about them with others, how you would see yourself as a generation in distinction to people who are older or younger than you were. It was a really fascinating panoramic book. But in the course of that book, I one day thought, well, my mother, who was a refugee from Nazi Germany, um, she'd grown up there in the 20s, She had a very good school friend. She had a bunch of good school friends, and they used to write letters to each other after the war when they made contact again. My mother had left for England in the 1930s. Others had stayed in Germany or gone elsewhere. And so I was just poking through a box of letters after she had died that was lying around in our attic and came across some materials relating to her very best former school friend. And this gave me an incredible shock because I suddenly realised that her best school friend's husband had been quite a considerable Nazi,
0: Hmm.
2: had been a civilian administrator in a small town and county in Poland just north of Auschwitz. And that gave me a heck of a shock. Uh, So I started exploring that, um, a very personal quest, as well as a historical exploration. And that really put me on to wanting to understand in much more detail how people got involved on the side of the perpetrators, what it meant for them, what it meant for their children and their families. But also I started exploring in much more detail the experiences of victims and how they tried, those who survived, tried to live with it afterwards. And so while that turned into a very focused book, that particular exploration, a book called A Small Town Near Auschwitz, the much bigger picture was what I was trying to explore in this book.
0: Well, the book covers a range of experience from these changing self-conceptions of perpetrators and victims through this post-war justice and memorialization. To begin with, though, what is the message that you want readers to walk away bearing in mind?
2: I think there are really two interrelated messages. One is the quest for justice, for reckoning with this past, was never carried out Effectively in the courtrooms of Europe, and nor could it be. The scale of the crimes was just too vast, the involvement was too diverse, the legal systems of post war states simply couldn't cope with either the numbers or the character of the crimes committed under Nazism. So, part two of the book really explores with rising frustration and a sense of anger. The ways in which perpetrators simply could get away with it in different ways, depending on the different areas of Europe in which they lived. And I compare particularly in that section of the book, post-war West Germany, East Germany and Austria, the three Third Reich successor states. So that's one strand of the message that um, the attempt at justice was just impossible And it's such a tiny minority of those who are guilty were actually brought to court and sentenced. The other message, I guess, is that the bigger backwash, the bigger aftermath of these crimes has been massive and very diverse and multifarious. So accounts that focus just on the well-known cultural representations or public controversies and debates or the memorial landscape the sculptures and the museums and the sites of atrocities the concentration camps and so on will only scratch the surface of a tiny little bit of the way in which this past has affected generations afterwards so i wanted really in the third part of the book to get into the question of what it meant to live with having experienced lived through those horrendous times in whichever capacity one did and what it meant for the children And the families, the friends, the wider circles of people who had lived through those times, the big, enormous psychological and personal aftermath, as well as the public representations that are are so much discussed.
0: Mm -hmm. You suggest in the introduction that viewing the Nazis through the lens of Auschwitz gives us tunnel vision of a sort. How so?
2: Auschwitz is rightly regarded as a symbol and a concentrated icon of of what the Holocaust meant. And we know an awful lot about it, not least because there are both physical remains and many survivors from very diverse areas of Europe, diverse nations, diverse groups of survivors. So Auschwitz is, in one sense incredibly important and central to our understanding of what happened. And it is the single site where the single largest number of victims were murdered, well over one million. But I think it's not sufficient to say, oh, my God, Auschwitz, which is somehow how people can... Feel they've dealt with it if they just think, oh, this is such a huge horror. How could we understand this? How can we explain this? It's too big a horror to even contemplate or to understand. And I think what I wanted to get across in the book is the diversity of experiences, the way in which in humanity, that which after the war, many Germans said we never knew anything about it. But that which people said they, quote, never knew anything about, started already in 1933 in Germany. The inhumanity was evident to the victims right from the very start. And I wanted to explore these sort of growing and expanding webs of inhumanity and the kinds of actions on a small scale that made possible that massive crime on a large scale. I also wanted to Explore the experiences of victims other than the ones who, again, rightly, and one can understand why, have been the centre of attention. The Holocaust is often thought of as simply the Jewish tragedy about the Jews, six million of whom were murdered. But it's also about more than Jewish experiences. It's about the experiences of other groups who had been marginalised for decades Even after the war, some of them still being criminalised, like gay men, for example, for whom homosexual acts were still a criminal offence for a couple of decades after the war in many, many places. Um, The Roma and Zinti, the gypsies, who were still regarded as socially deviant in some way by Germans in particular for a couple of decades after the war. Um, Other marginalised groups whose voices simply hadn't been heard very much So what I tried to do was just broaden the perspective so that we understood or we can understand and try and gain some sense of the experiences of people across a wide area of place and time in terms of sites of suffering and a wide variety of different groups of victims.
0: On the subject of the lesser crimes that build into the greater ones, in part one, you really examine the experience and self-conceptions of perpetrators beginning with the T4 euthanasia program as a case study of sorts. I was hoping you could briefly sketch the program for our listeners and then explain how you see it transforming Germans into murderers and accomplices.
2: The so-called euthanasia program in Nazi Germany was not what we would understand by euthanasia. It was killing the mentally and physically disabled uh, for the benefit, the supposed benefit, of the wider community and the state, which felt that an undue amount of support was being devoted to the upkeep of people who were not contributing to the so-called national community, the Volksgemeinschaft. So um, it was a quite different phenomenon from what we think of as euthanasia. And Hitler had been mooting it in the late 1930s. It began even before the war began. But he officially sought to legitimise it just after the war began, when he wrote a letter justifying it to two doctors, asking them to spread this around and to ensure that it got off the ground. Uh, It was never officially legitimised. It was never passed into law. It was simply a Hitler order on his own personal notepaper. It was not a legal legally justified action, but it was a program of mass murder, organized mass murder in institutions, in which the mentally and physically disabled were taken to specially designed gas chambers. The first was tried out in the in January 1940, uh, where they were killed. And there were six major centres with built-in gas chambers in the Third Reich. By the summer of 1941, this programme had become very, very widely known, and it was occasioning a lot of popular unrest. People were realising that something was going on when Great-Aunt Amalia was sent off, and a couple of weeks later they were told she had died of some implausible disease, or a child had been starved to death. So it was officially terminated in the summer of 1941. But unofficially, it continued in, I think, far more insidious ways over the remaining years of the war through starvation, through administering sleeping powders that made people sleepy, and they eventually died of lung congestion. Um, Very unpleasant means, which could be done anywhere. You didn't need a gas chamber to do this. It could be done in clinics and sanatoria across the Reich. So there were many, many victims of this policy. Now, how does it connect to the Holocaust? There is an interesting feature of the dating and of the personnel. The official euthanasia program in the the killing institutes came to an end in August 1941, at precisely the time when, following the invasion of the Soviet Union, very large numbers of Jews were being collected together and killed on the Eastern Front. And what is interesting about this shift is that as the notion of killing Jewish civilians, children, women, as well as old people, as well as men who might actually be thinkable of as partisans, as dangerous to the war effort, just as that was getting off the ground in Eastern Europe, so the policymakers were thinking about quote, more efficient. I'm I'm trying to put scare quotes around this, more efficient means of killing large numbers. And the killings in the open, the digging of pits that people had to be shot into, this was something that was attracting attention. Soldiers wrote home about it. People took photographs of roundups. People knew what was going on. Letters were full of reports of these killings on the Eastern Front. It was not efficient from that perspective. And it was not efficient from the perspective of the killers either. There are reports that some of the people involved in shooting simply couldn't do it unless they were made blind drunk and then their aim wasn't good. Uh, some of them suffered breakdowns, so it wasn't an easy way of killing. And in the beginning of September 1941, the first experiments were made with gassing people in a gas chamber in Auschwitz. In fact, Soviet prisoners of War were the... Particular victims of that experiment. But it became quite clear in the course of the autumn of 1941 that a more efficient, again, I'm using that in square quotes, a more efficient means of killing would be to bring the personnel, the know how, the expertise of the euthanasia programme, the gas chamber crews, over to Eastern Europe and start constructing dedicated extermination sites. So it's really significant in that transition where instead of killing jews where you find them as had been happening through the summer of 41 you bring begin to bring jews to places where they can be killed in large numbers through the use of gassing and the personnel gets moved across there's an enormous continuity of personnel people who had been trained in the clinics and sanatoria of the reich going over to staff the extermination camps in poland
0: in examining the experience in these camps and the myriad functions that they have, you have this great line tucked away that, for me at least, really got to the heart of this widespread complicity in the system. Uh, and I quote here, it, it was not so much perpetrators who produced the system of violence as the system of violence that produced perpetrators. Could you explain a little bit more what you mean by this?
2: Yeah, um, I think a lot of the research that's done on the psychology of killers and so on is just missing the point. I think what happens is as the concentration camp system expands, particularly during the war years, and as the system of forced and slave labor expands during the war years, as Nazi Germany changes in what is being done and who is needed to do it, so people get drawn into the effort in all sorts of different ways and at all sorts of different levels. So you see, for example, young women, perfectly ordinary children of peasants, farmers living in Mecklenburg or wherever in in and around the lovely lakeside concentration camp of Ravensbrück. I mean, the lovely lakeside, the concentration camp is ghastly. It's one of these typical contrast between a place of horror and idyllic surroundings but you see young peasant girls they're called up for reich labor service Um, they're offered either a rubbish job for low wages poor food not much fun working in a factory somewhere or they're offered a slightly better job as it seems nice uniform good food nice ss men to go out with a bit of status bit of power in life as a camp guard at ravensbrook So what do they take? They don't know what it entails. They're told, oh, it's full of asocials and deviants and we have to protect the people's community from these terrible people who are incarcerated here. Uh, They go along there. For the first week, they're in a state of shock. Um, Some of them think, my God, I can't go on with this. I can't do this. They go and see their supervisor. They say, I can't work here. The supervisor persuades them. And as one of the survivors of Ravensbrook pointed out, By four weeks of training, they're behaving just like all the other camp guards. They're vicious, they shout, they're cruel, they use their whip. Um, They've just become guards by virtue of living within that system. And I think you could replicate that kind of example many, many times in different ways as people begin to adopt worldviews to justify what they're doing and engage in behaviours that perform the act and eventually start To have to believe in their performance in order to continue performing it.
0: While examining what you call these microcosms of violence, you write about how Nazi persecution forced collective identity on the victims while perpetrators could maintain a sense of individuality. Could you tell us a bit more about that particular process?
2: That is a huge generalisation, but what goes on for victims is a process of dehumanisation, which they can attempt to resist, and they do resist, but there is an attempt at dehumanising victims through every possible means, the very obvious ones, the um, shaving of hair, taking away of own clothes and putting in camp uniforms, reducing people to a number, being tattooed all these things which make them just yet another inmate of whichever institution they're in and not their own individual person. And people resist that in all manner of ways. There are very fine examples, even at the extremes, of trying to think your own thoughts, to imagine a previous life or another life or to think about something, even in the case of one survivor, a really quite extraordinary notion that as Jews they would fast on the day when they should fast, whether or not they were religious Jews or completely assimilated, totally secular, they felt it was exerting a degree of agency to fast together on a Jewish day of fasting. Or the same survivor, I think, talks about the way in which one day he felt that simply defecating when he wanted to was a way of realising that he still exists, that he's still a human being, he's still got individuality and agency. But that is reducing it to very, very, very basic bodily functions, the last remaining areas. Others, of course, had far more leeway. I'm talking here of somebody who is in a quite extreme situation. But when we talk about the perpetrators, there, there is something different going on. Many perpetrators, and this I think is, is really interesting, were not themselves committed ideological fanatics. They were not committed anti-Semites, for example, the notion that everyone was motivated by what Goldhagen once called eliminationist anti-Semitism is, I think, wrong. There were many, many people who thought, no, I had some good colleagues who were Jews, I had some friends who were Jews, I was always nice to Jews, but in the current circumstances, this is the policy we have to carry out for these, these and these reasons. And later they could say, well, I was always against it. I never really agreed with it. I personally, my authentic inner self, was not invested in the policies that I helped to enact and and put into practice. And you can see this again and again and again.
0: This, of course, takes us through the actual experience of Nazi violence and genocide, and then into part two you move on looking at post-war justice, which you describe as utterly inadequate for dealing with the most guilty. I was wondering, again, if you could take a look at this broader process as Cold War tensions shifted priorities, moving out of the war years and into the 1950s.
2: Well, that's one of the first disappointments, that the initial attempt of the Allies to deal with Nazism is very, very rapidly displaced by on the part of the Western Allies, the determination to see a resurrected West Germany as an ally against the bigger, as it's now seen, threat of communism. And the very rapid shift from punishment, uh, amnesty and release so that people who hadn't been put to death in the late 40s for their crimes who had been given long, long prison sentences, suddenly found their sentences reduced and many of them were then amnestied and freed and very few of them were still in prison a decade after they'd first been sentenced. So that was the first shift, I think. Um, there are many, many other things going on though because the Cold War affects the picking up of Trials again from the late 50s. The Cold War rivalry between East Germany and West Germany actually starts trials up again in a way that might otherwise not have happened. So East Germany accuses West Germany of not really putting Nazis on trial, of having big Nazis in high places, and West Germany starts really trying to show itself as the better Germany in different ways, although not without. A lot of opposition. I think the notion that West Germany was this great, wonderful pioneer in overcoming the past is very overstated. If you look at something, a famous trial like the Auschwitz trial, the Frankfurt-Auschwitz trial in the mid-60s, this was pushed through against considerable opposition by Fritz Bauer. And it was a minority of people who were really determined to try and bring Nazis to justice. There was an awful lot of foot dragging. There was um, a problem with the political decisions about how the law should be defined and practiced in West Germany that meant it was easier to evade sentencing for being involved in a mass crime than one should have been, because they applied the ordinary criminal law of murder, individually motivated, carried out with particularly bestial means. Um, so West Germany's record, even when it started putting Nazis on trial again from the late 50s onwards after a lull in the mid-50s, is very speckled, I would say. You look at a place like Austria, and Austria too, there was a big push for justice in the first 10 years after the war, but from 1955 onwards, Austria really, it, it just drizzled out. And... After a few somewhat embarrassing cases where juries just simply set Nazis free, even when their guilt was evident for all to see, it became too embarrassing even to put Nazis on trial. So Austria pretty much gave up taking cases after the mid-1970s. And I think East Germany has been maligned in a different way, namely the usual judgment on East German cases is that they were all there just for political purposes. They were politically instrumentalized and so on. But I think viewed from a somewhat more distant perspective, you can see that East Germany does just plod on bringing people to trial when it isn't inconvenient to do. I mean, they also managed to keep quiet about certain former Nazis that were still making lives in East Germany. But when it was convenient and suited the GDR, they did actually bring more former perpetrators to trial than West Germany, Um, if you look at the the proportions in relation to the size of the population.
0: And at different levels too, that was something that was quite interesting. It seemed like East Germany was much more involved in pursuing the party apparatus at the district or, or regional level. Is that the case?
2: Well, East Germany pursued the little man as much as the people who had given them orders. And East Germany thought if you killed people, you'd committed murders Whereas West Germany seemed to think if you'd killed people, but somebody was higher up in the hierarchy and you'd taken orders from them, you hadn't actually murdered anyone. I mean, that's putting it very boldly. But roughly speaking, I take a few cases in great detail people who I've looked at in part one of the book, the experience of perpetration. And then I look at in terms of their trials. And then I follow through in terms of their family experiences in part three. But when you look at these micro case studies, you find repeatedly. That somebody who on the ground was doing the killing, if they landed up in East Germany, they would be found guilty of murder. Uh, One of them I look at in great detail was given a life sentence. Another was put to death. If you look at what happened to their superiors, those who had ordered them to commit these killings, if their superiors, their former bosses, had gone to West Germany, they very often completely got away with it. So one guy I look at, the guy called Rudy Zimmermann, who was in East Germany, he was given a life sentence and he served it and died in prison. His two bosses in the Gestapo headquarters where he worked, one of them was never brought to court at all in West Germany, and the other was given a relatively light sentence. It's 12 years, which is significant, but it wasn't a life sentence. That's a typical example there are many, many others. This is very, very typical, that in West Germany, you often get the slightly, and I'm putting it cynically here, but you often get the slight feeling in West Germany that the only really guilty people who had really given the orders were all already dead, very high up, Hitler, Himmler and co. Um, and anyone much below that in the hierarchy was really just following orders. This is a bit how the legal system played out. I'm, I'm overstating it, of course, but there is an element of truth to that cynical view.
0: You mentioned the difficulties in Austria with the embarrassments of trying to bring Nazis to trial. How did did Austria come for just to juxtapose it against East or West Germany? What's distinctive about their particular pursuit of justice?
2: In Austria... And in East Germany, they didn't have the um, particular definition of murder that West Germany had. In West Germany, as I said, they decided to adopt the old criminal law of individually motivated acts of particular violence. Um, in East Germany, they stuck with the Nuremberg principles. And in Austria, they had a wider definition of murder that wasn't so restrictive But I think it was just simply the sheer embarrassment that they just dropped taking cases from the mid-70s because it just wasn't getting past juries. And it took the Waldheim affair of the 1980s to even bring a public debate out into the open about Austria's relationship with the Nazi past and Austria's claim to have been Hitler's first victim, which they'd basked under for several decades at that point, so Austria is very, very belated. I think what the problem I find with comparing those three cases is this: with East Germany, you can pretty easily point to the instrumentalization, political instrumentalization of the Nazi past at every turn, including in the excessive memorialization of the anti-fascist resistance and the downplaying of other experiences. In West Germany, I guess what irritates me and is not very widely recognised is that they sort of won the war of reputations by looking as if they were confronting their past, facing up to their past, by obsessive, endless debates, public controversies, and in the last quarter of a century or so, enormous efforts at memorialisation of victims. But they did all this, and this is where I think there's a really cunning trick going on it wasn't intended as a trick but in in effect it was really cunning trick to look as if you've really quote overcome your past by memorializing victims and agonizing about the past while yet during the lifetime of the perpetrators effectively get letting 99% of them get away with it scot-free
0: well on that note I did particularly enjoy your very detailed treatment of the trials unfolding through the 1960s and the difficulties of proving guilt. I was wondering, though, if you could tell the audience how they sort of play out and the effects that you trace of what changes in public discussion.
2: I, th- I think what changes from the mid-1970s onwards is a younger generation being interested in the experiences of victims in the earlier period, the 60s, it's often called, the 60s and 70s are often thought of as the era of the witness, but people who came as witnesses, survivors, came as witnesses to the crimes of others, to what others had done. And I think what really shifts from the mid to late 70s onwards is that they suddenly become viewed as people in their own right, as survivors who are witnesses to themselves to what the experiences did to them, how they faced these experiences, what it meant for their lives viewed as a whole. And so in that sense, I think the era of the survivor displaces the former era of the witness. And a younger generation becomes much more interested in understanding perpetration in a wider way and the issues of survival in a wider way. So I think there's a real shift from the 80s onwards in how these things are viewed. And then, I suppose, very, very belatedly, there's a shift in the law um, with the Demianyuk trial, where finally it becomes sufficient to have served at a certain time in a certain place for guilt. And the witnesses who've come up in recent trials, the Oscar Groening trial, for example, what they do is testify not to what Groening may or may not have done on a particular day, as witnesses earlier were asked to do, but actually what Auschwitz as a whole did to them or even to members of their families, a dead sister, another relative. So the notion of what you are witnesses to changes and the notion of who can be identified as guilty changes in the most recent trials that we've seen. These recent trials in Germany were under a slogan, never too late, but I think it is way too late. These last attempts to get pathetically appearing elderly figures, frail, on, on, often on hospital trolleys, into court to face justice at this stage it, it seems to me utterly far too late and beside the point when so many known perpetrators who are hale and hearty and in the prime of life in the 50s and 60s were allowed just to get away with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of this transition from the era of the witness to the era of the survivor, In part three, you move beyond the formal attempts at justice, really, and begin to explore how people either returned to life or tried to carry on after Nazism. In this era of the survivor that overtakes the earlier attempts at formal justice, why did some people choose to come forward while others remained silent?
2: One of the things I argue in part three is that the notion of The silence of survivors is not as simple as it appears. Many people tried to talk and what they found was lacking was a sympathetic and willing audience. And so what I try and plot is changing patterns of communication. In the early post-war period, many, many, many survivors talked and talked endlessly, but depending on circumstances, they landed up talking among themselves in communities of people who had been through similar experiences and not beyond that community. You can see this in many, many accounts. So it's not that they were silent, it was they chose to whom they wanted to talk, and when, and about what. And then you see lots of considerations developing over the course of a life. Very often, parents did not want to upset their children's experiences. They wanted their children to enjoy childhood, to enjoy youth in a way that they had been prevented from doing. And so they didn't want to blight their children's lives with talk, endless talk about the past. But then as they had grandchildren, they suddenly felt at a later stage in their own lives, having maybe run a business, had a successful career, been very, very busy with work, not talk to their children, they would suddenly find on retirement with grandchildren the need both to talk about what they'd lived through but also to transmit it to the next but one generation to pass on the story. So I think there's a, a life cycle thing going on with survivors, but it's also a... It also relates to wider changes in the broader culture. Uh, There are many things which correlate with these changing phases. One of them is a much broader cultural recognition of victimhood and suffering. If you think after the First World War, um, shell shock was seen as a terrible thing. After the Second World War, you didn't want to talk about such things. But after the Vietnam War post-traumatic stress disorder is suddenly recognised. PTSD is suddenly a recognised ailment. It's validated. It's okay. It's something that has to be addressed and understood and you have to be upfront and talk about it. And so there is a new validation of victimhood and experiences of suffering from the 1980s, late 70s, 80s onwards in the wider culture, which also makes it possible to talk about painful experiences and things that earlier you might not want to have admitted to. So there are many things going on, both in the changing wider culture, in the changing audiences for accounts. The younger generations are willing to listen, whereas older generations wouldn't. And in the life stages of those who are fortunate enough to survive as young people, young people who are selected for work were far more likely to survive than elderly or the very young Um, and who then, as they grew older, were more willing to talk.
0: The sharing of these stories is only one aspect. There are also these coping strategies you talk about to make peace or at least learn to live with these past experiences. Could you tell us a little bit more about those?
2: I think the coping strategies are very, very various. They differ from one individual to another quite considerably. And, of course, who we don't get to hear about are the people who won't talk and don't cope. Um, You get accounts sometimes by a survivor who goes to try and find the other survivors in a group that they were part of. And I'm thinking of one in particular where he goes to Queens in New York and finds a fellow survivor who is clearly not coping at all, who is very, very angry, very, very disorientated. You think of the work of, of some psychologists, psychiatrists who've worked with survivors, and they are totally unable to even provide narratives of their experiences and are severely disturbed. So I think talking about coping, we have to understand there's enormous individual variation. I think what I was interested in in this book is also how it varies with historical and social context. If you live in Israel, it's a quite different matter from if you're a a sole surviving Jew in a Polish town, and you have to hide the fact that you are Jewish because there is still very active anti-Semitism around. Um, So coping strategies vary with the context as well as the person. I think one of the things I do in the book, which is very rare as far as I'm aware in overviews of the aftermath of the Holocaust, is I also look at how people who were involved on the side of the perpetrators dealt with their past how people who had been involved actively in the system tried to cover up, tried to keep silent, or tried to talk about it differently. And there the coping strategies are very clear. There is a self-distancing, a distancing yourself geographically. I was far away from where evil really happened, for example. Um, Distancing yourself morally. I never really believed in it. I didn't want to do it. I had to do it. Distancing yourself from any sense of agency. If I did it, and you can prove I did it, it was only because I was following orders and I was really a victim of the system too, because I couldn't do otherwise. Otherwise, something terrible would have happened to me. So, the coping strategies on the perpetrator side, I think, are all geared towards a kind of self distancing. And one of the things I actually found really interesting in this was when I was thinking about self distancing, I noticed that both survivors and perpetrators have a tendency to try and put distance between their current selves and the past site of perpetration or suffering. Even when um, you see survivors of Auschwitz talking about it, they kind of distance themselves from where the real victims were, namely the gas chambers, the people who did not survive, so there's always a distancing to make it less painful or to make oneself less responsible.
0: So is so that a, a removing of the self from a larger narrative or in the way that language is used? Like what what are the ways that that manifests? That's fascinating.
2: It's um, it, it's both, both narrative and language. Uh, if One account I look at in quite some detail is the account of a woman who was a young teacher at the time And went and taught at the school in Auschwitz where the commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Huss, where his children were being taught. She was one of their teachers. And she is constantly putting herself at slightly one remove from everything. So while she could see the smoke and see the ashes, she didn't really know what they meant. Um, While she heard what was going on on the railway tracks and the selections on the ramp, her response was, well, why do the children have to witness this on the way to school? Why can't this be done somewhere a little further away so that the children don't have to pass by and see it on the way to school? When she talks about not knowing what really went on, she says it was all behind the gates. And although she once went to an evening where she spoke with the... um, She was invited by friends' wives of SS officers there and some of the SS were in this soiree, this evening meal. Uh, When she spoke with them, they kept hushed. So she's always emphasising the not quite knowing, not quite being on the other side of the fence, not quite seeing what was in the gas chambers. And then when she defensively, self-defensively, talks about why she didn't do anything by way of passing the news on, she suggests this might have demoralised the young Germans fighting at the front and that what was most important was the war effort. So there is a higher goal, the patriotic goal of supporting the German war effort. And all of this builds up a picture to herself and to her family, presumably the account was written for children and grandchildren. Um, It builds up a picture where she sustains her sense of self as important because she lived through something terribly significant, really important and exciting times, but also as somebody who was a moral person who didn't quite know enough to have needed to act on it, even though she could guess and see everything and was told all sorts of things, but also who had a higher moral purpose for not having acted on it in any way that she could have done, like talking to others about it. So it's it's a very complex construction of an acceptable self where you can salvage having been historically significant in some way or having a brush with something historically significant in history, but at the same time salvage a sense of having acted morally. Right. Um, So I think there's a lot going on of that sort of thing. I mean, I've just taken one example there at some length, but there are many, many accounts where you can see this sort of self-justification and self-distancing at the same time.
0: You also go into issues faced by successor generations with the children of Holocaust survivors and perpetrators. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Uh, what interests me here there are two very very distinct and different groups involved and a lot has been written about the children of survivors about the children of people who were persecuted and i wanted to explore a bit how it inevitably affected the second and even the third generation in those families even where parents or grandparents didn't talk about what they'd been through there is a an intergenerational transmission that makes this past really shape the experiences of the next generation. Many of them say things like, the most important events in my life happened before I was born, and they feel like they've been born somehow after everything that was important. And many of them feel unplaced, not displaced like their parents, but unplaced, just not of or from anywhere. So the the children of survivors, it's a, a very widely researched area but what interested me particularly on that side was what difference did it make where they grew up whether they grew up in israel or north america or poland or germany or france um, and to look at the historical variations in the impact on the second generation then there was another group entirely the children of perpetrators And this has only recently begun to receive real attention by scholars. There have been several collections of interviews with children of prominent Nazis, um, the well-known names in the Third Reich. But what interested me particularly was the much, much, much more widespread phenomenon, that vast second generation who grew up in the shadow of knowing their parents had done something, had been implicated in some way, had been complicit in some way, and yet they didn't really quite want to know what, or if they did know what, they were caught in a terrible bind of wanting to continue to love a deeply guilty father while still rejecting everything that father had stood for and worked for. A very, very difficult, complex emotional situation. And what interested me further about these two groups Is the way in which, in the last couple of decades, they've been beginning to engage in dialogue with each other, children of perpetrators meeting up with children of survivors, trying to explore each other's experiences and and find out what it meant for the other, and to enter into sort of dialogue in that second generation that was never possible between the persecutors and the persecuted in the communities who actually lived through the period of persecution.
0: Well on that note, it only seems appropriate that we conclude with a question about public memory. How has all of this shaped the memorialization of the Nazi past? Everything that you're talking about in the book feeds into these broader public narratives
2: um yeah and and the broader public narratives have affected how people talk about themselves so it's it's a, an iterative process back and forth mm. um the memorialization i think in germany which again has this incredible reputation of you know being they call it the weltmeister in germany the you know the world master of memorialization um is really i think something more ambiguous than it at first sight appears and i certainly feel ambivalent about it um, on the one hand, Germany has really been overwhelmed by a desire, particularly among the second and third generations, to sort of make an impossible retrospective amends for what the parents and grandparents did. And so there is huge memorialisation of victims everywhere, um, from large sites, big memorial sites, through to the little so-called Stolpersteiner, the stumbling stones set in pavements, uh remembering a single individual at their last place of residence so enormous memorialization of victims and that is right but that too has a history some victim groups didn't get as mem- memorialized as quickly as others uh, it was only very belated and against considerable opposition that gay men received memorials for example from the late 1980s onwards or the Gypsies, the Sintian Roma, again, very belated memorialization. Euthanasia Institute, similarly. But what bothers me about this, and I think it's a good thing that there is this vast memorialization, what bothers me is twofold. One aspect is that it kind of sometimes seems like it's there as an expression of the remorse of those who weren't responsible and a desire to. Maintain the memory of the victims of their forebears, um, and secondly, these, this memorialisation of victims still, very largely, there are a few exceptions, but very largely, leaves out the perpetrators. There are very, very few sites which explain in adequate and complex, sufficiently complex detail who were the perpetrators, who is responsible. So it's kind of a landscape of mourning without pointing the finger at those who are responsible for it. There are a few sites which really focus on perpetrators, um, the topography of terror in Berlin, for example, or the House of the Wannsee Conference, or in Munich, now a new Nazi documentation centre. And there are a few sites which are very perpetrator-focused, quite obviously in Nuremberg or near Salzburg. but. Very largely, the memorials themselves leave out the complicity of so many ordinary people and the concentrated guilt and responsibility of a significant minority. And this I find quite a difficult issue to understand and to know how we should deal with.
0: Regret without reflection?
2: No, I don't think so. I think it's knowing how to convey for the next generation how. Small steps and little acts of inhumanity, um, deciding not to recognize your former friend anymore because they're Jewish, or thinking it's okay to take a role as a cook in a euthanasia institute, or whatever it may be, small steps can lead to the possibility of much bigger things. And that's a complex message. Um, and what angers me too, it, while we're on memorials, is the question of. Um, what reparations were paid afterwards, what restitution and reparations were paid. Because again, you see people who made enormous profits on the backs of slave labour in the Third Reich, um, industrialists who exploited people till they dropped dead and then just shipped in more from the nearest concentration camp. These people went on to make careers in post-war, West Germany in particular, and retired on fat pensions, civil servants who had run towns in the occupied territories who had assisted in ghettoisation, went back to work in the civil service in West Germany, and retired on enormous civil service pensions. And yet the survivors very rarely got serious compensation. Most got far too little, and some got not merely too little, but way too late for the vast majority of them, like the forced and slave labourers so there's a hidden aspect there too it's it's justice at both ends the the um trying to make up to those who had suffered as well as bringing to justice those who were responsible those two sides of the coin of justice were both inadequate and the obsessive memorialization which catches the public eye rightly and it's important somehow to me doesn't quite make up for the other two things
0: mm-hmm. It's it's almost pernicious in the way that it continues to signal that it can't happen, uh, or or it leaves out the, the process by which it happens by just focusing on the suffering. Yeah. Well, food for thought. Thank you again for coming on to chat with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. But before you go, what is it that you're working on now? Where is this project taking you?
2: Okay, I'm working, as you might expect from my slightly critical remarks, on the question of complicity and perpetration. Um, As part of a bigger project funded by the AHRC, we're working together to look at the ways in which people became complicit, got involved in acts of perpetration, and how they talked about it afterwards, how they reflected on their experiences, how cultural reflections considered... Perpetrators and questions of justice, so I'm really going on down those tracks, but in particular, in the short term, I'm writing a book about German society between nineteen thirty three and thirty nine and how people became effectively inactive bystanders, people who would turn away and not act and not get involved to assist victims. So I'm really trying to think up the bystander category far more explicitly than has been done. It's been a very ragbag sort of additional category. We know who victims are. We know who perpetrators are to some extent. But the bystander category has remained very nebulous. And I think actually the more I think about it, the more significant it is what the vast majority of society do and don't do. That can really determine the possibility of one outcome – Or another outcome, and the way that history actually therefore develops. So, I think this is worthy of much more central attention than it's received so far.
0: Well, when that's finished, we look forward to having you back to hear more about what has been a fascinating insight into the Nazi past. And thank you once again.
2: Thank you very much. Enjoyed it.
0: Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been talking to Mary Fulbrook about reckonings. Legacies of Nazi Persecution, and the Quest for Justice. Reckonings will be available October 2018 from Oxford University Press. And those of you who have found your interest piqued quite apart from picking up a copy of Reckonings can look forward to more from the Compromised Identities Project at UCL. Compromised Identities, I am reliably informed, will have a conference and moving exhibit to look forward to in the next couple of years, which I will be eagerly covering on the Third Reich History Podcast. For those of you looking to explore the broader spectrum of perpetrator and victim experiences around the Holocaust, not to mention the in-depth overview of post-war justice in the meantime, all in very readable prose and at reasonable cost, I might mention, check the link in the accompanying blog post. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.